Following the return of the Crew 2 astronauts from the International Space Station this week, we thought we'd have a look at what they got up to during their 198 days spent on board the station. 198 days on a space station. That's living the dream. We'll also give you a rundown of all the other news from the world of spaceflight. As always, please do get involved with us on our social networks. We're at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And we love hearing from you. And we have new t-shirts. Check them out on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com. But right now, please enjoy episode 63 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 63. Emily, are you off to Huntsville this weekend or have I got that wrong? No, you are correct. Uh, I am absolutely going to Huntsville this weekend. I'm going on Friday and I am so, so excited because I I just cannot wait. It's going to be awesome. I went last actually went a year ago this week. Um, oh, really? We, was it yeah. exactly a year ago, was it? Yeah, it was exactly a year ago. I was going to go to D.C. originally, but a lot of the things I wanted to visit in D.C. aren't really open right now. So I'm like, mm, I'll just go back to Huntsville instead. It's affordable. <laughs> and it, I, I mean, I love Huntsville, so it should be a lot of fun. I, I want to sleep again across from that beautiful Saturn V. Yes. Uh, talking of which, did you see that? I think I sent you a link this morning, the video that uh, Houston Space Center did of the drone shop going through their Saturn V exhibit this week. Yeah, I love that. Oh, it was so beautiful, wasn't it? They had like some, it was overdubbed with Neil Armstrong talking about the rocket. It was it was amazing. Also, Emily, I, I just want to congratulate you on your new blog that you put on Medium as well this week, which was... Uh, must have been very difficult to write. So uh, good job on that one. Yeah, it was... It was uh... Not really easy to write, but I, it's one of those things where I just was like, uh, I just felt like being kind of honest with people, you know? <laughs> and plus, it was sort of a diary. Like, I know some people are going to be like, why didn't you keep it to yourself? But I'm like, at the beginning of the pandemic, I kind of liked the idea of keeping a diary, but I I don't, I just never did it. And finally, I was like, man, you know, I was thinking about just the pandemic and, you know, how things have sort of changed. And I was like, well, why don't you write about you know, getting sober or something like that. wasn't fun to write about because I had to revisit some not fun things, but um, I feel better that I kind of got it out off of my chest, you know? When, you, when you're going through something like this, does it help you feel like you're keeping yourself accountable by being public about it? Yeah, it, it actually does. I, I know there's probably some people out there who are probably like, why does she have to tell us about it? We don't care, you know? And that's, I, I get it. But at the same time, I feel like I, I do go to a lot of uh, events publicly and um, and I'm not insulted by it because I understand people. There are people out there who can drink very responsibly and I'm fine. And that's perfectly cool. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Mm. I don't mind being around like I don't want people to think, oh, man, we can't, you know, drink around Emily. It really doesn't bother me that much. It's just sometimes people be like, hey, you want to drink? And I'm like, oh, I, you know, I can't have anything, you know, and stuff. And you know, it's sort of, I sort of wanted to explain that, you know, because, you know, yeah. I still go to events and stuff. And like I said, it doesn't bother me when people drink around me, but I just can't like accept a drink, you know, and I, some people think, you know, when you say that they think, oh, you're just snotty. And it's like, no, it's not that at all. It's just, I 
can't drink, you know? Well, it's a great article, so uh, thank you very much for writing it. And uh, I'll be putting links to that within the show notes. Uh, but I think it's probably time we got onto some space stuff, so uh, I'm going to hit a sting. Okay, all flight controllers, keep watching your data. I'm still going to be asking for a go-no-go here in about four minutes. In the news section last week, we spoke about the fact that the Crew-3 mission was due to take off, but it had been postponed, and we were hoping to be able to talk about that this week. Well, unfortunately, it got scrubbed again because of the weather. Although, spoiler alert, it may have launched in the time between us recording and this podcast coming out, so we may talk about that later. Anyway... This scrub meant that they would not get to space before the Crew-2 mission needed to head home from the space station. So with that in mind, we thought we'd spend some time talking about some of the things that the Crew-2 mission achieved since it launched earlier this year. Yep, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched on April 23rd of this year, carrying four astronauts on the Crew Dragon Endeavour spacecraft. Yes, that's the same uh, spacecraft that took Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin to the station in 2020 on the first crewed test flight of a Dragon spacecraft. The four personnel aboard this time consisted of NASA astronauts Shane uh, Kimborough and Megan MacArthur, uh, JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency astronaut Akito Hashide, and ESA, a European Space Agency astronaut, Thomas Pesquet, all of whom had been to space before. Yeah, it was a mission that broke some records too. It became the longest space flight by a US crewed spacecraft. Although the record they've broken actually hasn't been held that long. It was set by the Crew-1 mission earlier this year. Crew-1 spent 168 days in space, but Crew-2 have managed 119. And before the Crew-1 record... The record went all the way back to 1974 on a mission that involved some pirates of some description. <laughs> I, I love it. <laughs> they will also be included in three other records uh, for the most number of people in space at the same time. Two because of the Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin launches in July, but also the first time that 14 people were in orbit at the same time, which happened in September while the Inspiration 4 crew were in space and also the Shenzhou 12 crew were on board the Chinese space station. In total, they traveled 84,653,199 statute miles during the mission, completing 3,194 orbits around the Earth. Kimbrough, Hashide, and Pesquet also completed four spacewalks to install the uh, new solar arrays. The fourth of these was by Hoshide and Pesquet on September 12th, and that was the first ever uh, spacewalk in the history of the International Space Station that did not include a uh, Russian or an American. And they uh, arrived home. Just last night, well, as we're recording this just last night, on Monday the 8th of November. Uh, Emily, did you get to see this one? Did you hear it at all? Was there a sonic boom? I think it was near you, wasn't it? Unfortunately, I didn't hear the sonic boom. I think it traveled over like the Yucatan Peninsula and like Pensacola, so north of me. So I didn't get to hear it, unfortunately. I did go outside, but I couldn't see anything, probably because it was way further north of me. But um, if you go on facebook and you know social media and twitter there are some incredible shots from like northern florida and the gulf of mexico i I, there was a shot from like a oil platform in the gulf of mexico that showed it coming on over and it it was just amazing looking i mean it looked like a looked like a comet or something or what you'd think a comet would look like just streaking through the sky it was incredible Nice. Yeah, because it was at night as well, wasn't it? It was a night splashdown, which is Yeah, they cool. came back at around 10.30, so it was really visible 
sort of to the north of us. So I wish we'd seen it here. Uh, when Inspiration 4 came back, I we definitely heard that. So we that was yeah. crazy. Like I was just chilling in my house and all of a sudden, boom, boom. I was like, oh my gosh, they're back. <laughs> you don't hear that a lot nowadays. It wouldn't throw in the shuttle you did, but not, not nowadays. We hear it a little bit sometimes, but not a lot. But yeah, unfortunately, I didn't see or hear it here but i was looking back through like my you know my phone and stuff like that and i remember i did see the launch in april and it seems like such a long time ago but at the same time it doesn't seem like very long ago it's weird it's like god they've been gone really long and then it's like it's only april you know but i was looking at the video and uh i remember the launch was incredible because it was early morning i think it was around five something we just got the best view of it. Like even in St. Petersburg, we could see it really vividly, which was incredible. Like, you know, it's kind of hit or miss where I'm at. Cause we're about 120, 130 miles out. You know, sometimes, you know, you see this awesome, you know, vision. And sometimes you just see like a streak. Boop. That's it. You know, like the Lucy launch, we didn't see a lot of it at all, but um, yeah, we saw like the, Oh my gosh, it was, it was beautiful. Like it was perfectly clear out. You could see, stage separation and then you could see the first stage coming back which was nuts yeah because it caught if I remember you, i remember you telling us about this on the podcast it, it caught the light of the sun coming up yeah, right it was it was amazing and like it, it looked like a like a, a space angel or something i i can't explain it and the early morning light it was just it was really a beautiful launch it was probably one of the most beautiful launches i've ever seen with my own eyes mm. so i really i just really was like wow that looks amazing and I've seen quite a few launches, so that's saying a lot. It was really, it was really cool. I, but I can't believe it was that many months ago. It doesn't really, it, it's like so much has happened between now and then. At on one hand, it's like, man, that was long ago, and now it's, and then it's like, but it really wasn't. You know, I don't know. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, it feels like yesterday to me that Bob and Doug were up there. So, yeah, we've already had Crew One and now Crew Two finish since then because they arrived back last night, as we said, and it was good to see them walking around last night and uh, heading over to to meet their families when they got off the plane. It was always good to see. Yeah, I was like uh, looking at them today. Like they flew into Ellington from probably around Pensacola and uh, they looked pretty good. They were walking and I was like, what? Like if I had spent six months in space, I I don't think I'd be walking. If I'd spent a day in (laughs) space, I doubt I'd be walking. I'd probably be on a stretcher, like doing an interview from my bed, you know, like, with like a stuffed animal, I'd I'd probably be sitting in the bathtub in my hotel with my clothes and my jewelry on still, you know, like I would <laughs> not be standing up walking. And I, I think that's really seriously, I think it's a testament to whatever fitness program they're doing on the International Space Station. I know they work out a lot up there and obviously that keeps them healthy enough. So when they come back, they're not like a limp, you know, sort of a wet noodle because I've seen people come back before and. I'm not saying they didn't exercise or anything at all. I'm sure they exercised a heck of a lot, but I've I noticed that some people react differently to coming back from space. Like a, some people do really great coming back, and some people just look really sick coming back. I mean, I think that goes. It's just a testament to all the science they're doing on board, though, isn't it? That that all the things they're trying to learn about long duration missions and what it does to the body and they're trying different things up there to try and make sure that when they come back they are in a better place 
I, I mean, I think it's really, really important what they're doing. One of the two funny astronauts podcasts recently was about what they had to do when they got back. Uh, obviously, um, Garrett Reisman was up on the on the ISS for a fair amount of time, and and he, I mean, that was quite a way, quite a long time ago now. And he spoke about what it meant and how it worked for him. But I think they've learned so much as a result of all. I mean, they've been having these long duration missions now for for over a decade. I'm sure. Uh, so pl- plenty to have learned. And I think that leads us on to uh, looking at some of the experiments which um, the Crew-2 mission got up to while they were up there. Um, and one, actually, one of the things they were doing... Now, now <laughs> I, was, I was researching all this earlier, and it's crazy the amount, that actually, that they were doing. And, and we're going to try and summarise some of these things and talk about them and why, why we feel they're important or fun or whatever, but... It's ridiculous. I know six months is a long time, but with all the working out stuff they have to do and the fact they need to rest as well, I don't know how they didn't have their own mutiny with all this stuff they <laughs> had to do, but some of it, some of it's pretty cool. So there was this uh, cardinal muscle investigation thing that they were doing. Um, so, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be reading straight from the NASA websites here because uh, I... I don't know how to summarize this any better, Um, but it it says that uh, as people on Earth age, they lose muscle mass, a condition called sarcopenia. Because this condition progresses slowly, it's difficult to identify drugs that might treat it. Astronauts can also experience a loss of muscle mass during spaceflight, but it happens much faster. The cardinal muscle experiment tests whether engineered tissues cultured in space could take advantage of this accelerated loss and support development of a model for quickly assessing possible drugs prior to human clinical trials. I mean, that's just nuts that they're doing that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's crazy to me. It's like they're trying to sort of sort of reverse engineer the whole thing just so they can discover a drug that could perhaps reverse it on Earth. Because people always ask me, like, Emily, you know, you love space. What's the point? (laughs) You know, why are we going to space? Do you just think it's cool and looks cool or something? And I'm like, no, actually, they're doing some pretty awesome stuff in space to sort of figure out how to live better here. Yeah. This in no way is comparable to what they do in the ISS. But I remember when I was in the military, when you go on a deployment, you're on a ship most of the time. So and the ship has yeah. a gym, but it's like I, I'll be I'll be brutally honest. I didn't have time to exercise much because you're just busy all the time. Like you're working all the time. So it's like you don't have a lot of time to go, you know, run or work out and, you know, whatever. And I swear to you, when you come back from a deployment and you try to do like a regular, you know, like go back to a regular workout, it is like you are like a linguini. <laughs> you go to the gym and you're like trying to do like a push up, right? Like just a push up. Can't even do it. Like you can do like I remember before deployment, I could do like 60 push ups for my like physical my, my PRT. That's what they called it. A physical readiness test. And 60 for a woman is not bad, you know? And uh, in two minutes, and I came back and I could do like five and I thought I was going to die. I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Like, and it's just because you haven't been using those muscles. Yeah. You haven't really been using, I mean, I was using some of it because I had to operate, you know, large valves and stuff, but I wasn't working them out like every day, you know, like I normally or every few days, like I normally would. So it was just nuts. So that really is a big deal. And I really do think, um, this kind of research can help us out a lot here, you know, as people get older, as they do lose that strength. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, on, on a similar vein in terms of things they're doing to help 
health back here. There's uh, there's something called the real-time protein crystal growth experiment. Again, I'm going to quote here. It's, this is a biotechnology study demonstrating new methods for producing high-quality protein crystals in microgravity to potentially develop better drugs to treat a variety of diseases on Earth and advance the commercialization of space. Astronauts observe the crystals, they uh, report on their growth, and uh, they make changes based on initial observations. Yes, this will also help long-term space flights and, and things like that, but this is all stuff that's really going to affect life on Earth, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've all seen in the last, you know, within the last 18 months, how a single virus can sort of up upend our world, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, you know, if you, you look, I mean, they developed a vaccine within that time, which is, which is really incredible. That's a very short time to develop a vaccine for something. They're, they're really just starting to come out now with, you know, drugs that can, you know, if you get COVID can mitigate the effects of it, you know, different kind of viral inhibitors and things like that. So really, you know, I, I think considering where we were probably like 30, 40 years ago, that's nothing short of amazing. And the ISS is really at the forefront of that as well. I mean, they're really exploring, you know, sort of new methods. That's another thing when people say, you know, Emily, why do we go to space? You know, it's because it's going to help us on Earth as well. It's not just to to do, you know, take pretty pictures and, and do some orbits or something like that. You know, it really is helpful here. Yeah, I'm, I've got a couple more examples of exactly that. Now, these are a little bit more technical, uh, so bear with me. But there was the Molecular Muscle Experiment 2, which uses tiny worms, believe it or not, to study human health changes in space. MME2 tests a series of drugs to see if they can improve health in space, possibly leading to new therapeutic targets for examine on Earth, examination on Earth. I mean, that's just nuts. Anyway, there's, they also installed uh, and configured a new advanced colloids experiment module inside the fluids interact, integrated rack. I didn't know what any of this meant earlier today. I'm still not sure I do. Anyway, a colloid. I'll give you a really simple definition. It's a mixture of one substance spread out evenly inside another substance. There can be two different phases of states or states of matter. Uh Hopefully that will help, but this is pretty cool. So uh, this set of experiments not only helps scientists prepare for future colloid studies, but also provides insights into the relationship between particle shape, colloidal interaction, and structure. Studies of colloids can benefit everything from toothpaste to pharmaceuticals. Just nuts. Also, there was the tardigrades uh, experiment, Cell Science 04. Uh, these things are known as water bears, and they possess these superpowers when it comes to surviving in really harsh conditions. So understanding how they tolerate extreme environments should help the whole long-term spaceflight thing. Just ridiculous what they're doing up there. Yeah, I'm looking at and um <laughs> Dave's like, why did you bring this up? He's probably going to think I'm bringing this up too early. One experiment that I was particularly excited about seeing uh, happen on Earth was, uh, I'm going to read it from the sheet here. Dave's going to kill me, um, is NASA's Plant Habitat 04 PHO4 experiment, which cultivated peppers yes. aboard the International Space Station for the first time. The crew tended to the hatch chili peppers aboard uh, for about four months before harvesting them, they then ate some of the peppers, and the rest will be sent back to Earth for analysis. 
oh boy, they ate them before they were analyzed. Oh boy. Uh, this plant, what if they're like mutant peppers, man? Um, this, <laughs> the Incredible Hulk. Um, this plant experiment will be one of the most complex to date on station because of the long germination and growing times. This study will add to NASA's knowledge of growing food crops for long duration space missions. So really, NASA is combining the best of both worlds here. They're combining, um, you know, analyzing, you know, plant growth and structure and tacos. They're really combining, <laughs> I mean, everything that's good about, you know, uh, just great about humanity in general. So, yeah, tacos. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to change the subject slightly. We still talk about the peppers. But there's this great thing, I'm not sure if you've seen, there's this great thing that's been set up by a guy called Jacob Torres, who works at Kennedy. Now, I'd like to thank Adam Peterson, one of our listeners, for bringing this to my attention. So this guy, Jacob Torres, runs a grassroots STEM education program from his living room called the Space Chili Challenge, which is nuts, right? So he's asking people to grow a pepper plant indoors in a controlled environment uh, to help see if uh, they can get the heat and flavor of a New Mexico chili in a controlled environment, basically what they do on the uh, on the International Space Station. So he thinks there might be techniques which we can cultivate on Earth, which they can use on the space station to get the most amount of heat and flavor into the peppers that they're growing up on space. So essentially, a load of kids can grow a pepper plant to help space flight. How cool is that? Yeah, uh, I'm reading from the, the, I think it's the press release. You will have the opportunity to follow the horticultural recommendations provided to grow red or green chili. Once you've grown your chili, send a sample to UNN to be tested for capsaicin. Capsaicin is the compound within peppers that gives its its uh, spiciness. The submission that records the highest capsaicin level is truly a pepper out of this world and will win the title. Um, yeah, did you see the um, did you see the picture? Uh, God, what the, it's one of the astronauts who's still aboard the ISS. Is it Mark Vanderhey? Yes, Mark Vanderhey. Yeah, he was he. Uh, yeah, he sampled one of the peppers and he kind of made this face. I don't know if that's good or bad oh. or not. Usually, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it hit him kind of hard after like, you know, not tasting something spicy for that long. It, it, maybe that's it. I don't know. I can't. Ima- I can't. Im- well, I cannot sort of understand. I, being in the military, you don't get a lot of spicy food aboard the ship. So when you taste something spicy, you, you're it's like your brain cannot. Like, you're like, oh, my God, this is so delicious. Yeah. You know, it's like you can't comprehend it. So maybe that's what he was thinking in that picture. I don't know. Yeah, it must be a real overload on the senses. But I, I do love that this this project is going on alongside something on the ground. It was something that, that Tim Peake did when uh, when he was flying for ESA and he was had he had these plant projects going on in the classrooms at schools and he was doing something similar in space and it, it's that way of connecting everything as well isn't it you connect what's going on there with what you're going what's going on at home and I just think this is another example of that where you, you know you can inspire kids to get involved with what's going on with space just by growing a chili and, and exactly, it's so simple. It's so simple, but it's such a great way of uh, of bringing it all together. And and people know what a taco is, and and it's a big deal. So that whole idea of having a taco in space, yes, they're doing amazing things as we spoke about, but they're also making it so that people can connect with them. And I think that's really important. It is. It is really important. And um, oh my god, here's where 
Okay, here's the part of the show where everybody just cuts it off and is like, I'm never listening to Space and Things again. <laughs> um, you can really trace its roots to Bing Skylab <laughs> because um, this is the part where everybody just throws their phone at the wall. It is like, I'm done. Not listening to this show again. Um, damn Skylab show. But no, the Skylab had a lot of student experiments aboard it. And, you know, it was kind of devised as something to connect students who were really just getting into sort of exploring, you know, different kinds of sciences and spaceflight at the same time. So it's it's really kind of a neat tradition of, okay, because Apollo didn't really have that, the lunar missions, you know, those were kind of all very, you know, sort of business-like and they didn't really have a lot of, you know, student experiments, but Skylab sort of established like, okay, we're going to have a connection between, you know, space and what people, you know, something that kids can relate to. And, I know some people are like, well, why do we have to have something that kids can relate to? It really is important, you know, not just for, you know, science fields, but I think also kids, you know, kids need to see the photographs from space as well. Um, this mission has had some incredible photographs, uh, especially of um, the Northern Lights. Yeah. Um, that have been released. I mean, just some of the photos are just absolutely mind blowing to me. Like, I've never seen some as good as this. And I think, you know, that that's not just appealing on a scientific level. I think, you know, kids who are into art can maybe relate to that or, you know, aesthetically, they can look at that and say, wow, that's maybe something I want to learn more about or paint or maybe depict, you know, in some kind of artistic installation or something like that. So, yeah, really, there's a lot of things you can apply it to. But I agree. I think it's really important you have that sort of connection between, you know, what we're doing, something fun, I guess, yeah. to connect what they're doing up there with what we can do down here. Yeah, and those photos that they take are really important as well that you mentioned. Uh, so it's actually part of their job. They do this thing called crew Earth observations, and they record how the planet is changing over time from human-caused changes such as urban growth and reservoir construction to natural dynamic events such as hurricanes, floods, and volcanic eruptions. They're checking all this stuff out, not just with photos, uh, but with a, a range of equipment that they've got up there. And it's really important. And Last week, I mentioned about the the climate change conference, the COP26 in Glasgow, and Tomai Pesca even tweeted the UN from space with a photo, uh, and it's, it was a it was a tweet, which I think is so important, and the fact that these tweets reach people as well. So many people. It's so important. So the tweet said, the climate change conference, COP26 Glasgow, has started. We need climate action to reduce emissions and protect our world. And we can only do this together. Now, I get the sentimentality. uh, And some people may think it's over-sentimental. But it's really important. And and the, the observations that are being made up in space are really helping us understand what is going on back on Earth. and. As I said last week, one of the main arguments against space travel I'm seeing at the moment is this environmental impact that spaceflight has. But the the observations we're we're making up there, or the astronauts are making up there, and or satellites, are really changing our understanding of how the world is working. It's so important. Eyes in the sky. It couldn't be any more important to see from a higher perspective what is going on cannot be understated and that's one of the big jobs that they do up there absolutely and i i totally agree with you and um 
I'm glad a European astronaut did it. I don't know if a United States astronaut could make the same statement and get, you know, they'd probably be raked over the coals because of, I won't even get into it because of the climate in our country right now with politics and people trying to put politics where it doesn't really belong. But uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think having eyes in the sky, I mean, whether, you know, they are human. And um, again, I, I won't mention any certain space station names because I don't want to get <laughs> I don't want people to throw their phone at the wall again. I understand phones are very expensive, but um <laughs> I'm sure there are people out there probably like, oh man, he had to say this, you know, European astronaut said something about the environment and astronauts need to stay out of that. So, you know, if you look back in spaceflight history, you know, if you look at Skylab and if you look at the Landsat program, which started in 1972, you know, it's really just the continuation of a long heritage of, you know, people looking at the Earth and satellites looking at the Earth and trying to figure out, OK, what's happening to our planet, you know? And I think, you know, these aren't probably terribly glamorous missions, you know, because, you know, people, when they think about spaceflight, they're like, oh, we got to go to the moon, which is which is awesome. But, you know, looking back at Earth doesn't seem very glamorous, but I think in the next 100 years, we're going to appreciate it a lot more than we do now. That's yeah. all I got to say. Yeah, I agree. I, personally, I don't think, uh, I don't think observing the earth and seeing if man hasn't made it or, or humans have made an impact on it is a political problem. It is a political thing. I simply, agree, totally. simply doing that scientific research of observing and commenting and observing differences and, and making hypotheses of what could have caused those issues isn't politics that's science and, oh no you're uh, exactly right I, I agree with you it does get turned into a political issue but it shouldn't be it should it should be a case of okay well look this is what we're learning here and from those observations uh we you know we should uh we should do something different there was a uh, there was a great um podcast uh the, the houston space center we've got a podcast and i listened to one recently and they were talking about a project that's on the iss at the moment one of these ob earth observation uh projects in which they are basically able to see which plants are in distress based on the heat that they're giving off at various points. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's insane. And it's only from being at that high vantage point where they can get that bigger picture and see that. And, and when I say distressed, it means that they may not be getting the water at the right time. And therefore, they can tell farmers, farmers can download this information now and, and see when their crops would be best to be watered and how much water to give them. It's crazy the data that exists. And NASA are just literally trying to get people to say, to, to look at the data. We've got all the data. You just need to come and look at it. Come and ask for it because yeah. that can make such a difference to crop yields and all those kind of things and the impact we're making on the, on the environment, water waste or so on and so forth. So there's so much going on. No, that's political. It's science led. It's amazing what they're doing. Um yeah. uh, and we don't we don't even appreciate or know half the stuff they're doing. And I think that's the biggest challenge for NASA and other space programs at the moment is getting word out about these programs and that's part of what we're trying to do now. Uh in talking about some of these things that have happened over the last 6 months which didn't make the news, did they? No, you don't hear about it. You hear about when they launch and when they come back. Yeah. That's about it. You don't hear about what they're doing really in space unless you follow that, unless you're somebody like us who's like following that on social media. But, you know, I don't think regular people are really following that. And 
I don't want to sound like I'm being, you know, uh, condescending to the general public because they don't follow this stuff. And I get it. You know, they're, they're probably not into this. When regular people, when I say regular people, people who aren't space enthusiasts, you know, they always ask, you know, I'm always asked, like, why do you, why are you so into this? You know, why is this so important? You know, do you just think it's cool looking? And I'm like, well, it is cool looking. You know, it, it's cool to see launches. And, you know, I love rockets. I love the all the kids stuff. You know, I, I love yeah. all that stuff. But really, I mean, you know, when you do look at it, you know, the, the things I do appreciate are the, the applications we're going to be able to use, you know, here as well, because like you said, we're going to, you know, we want, we want, we need new medicines. We need new ways to predict, you know, um, how earth is going to change in the next 50 to a hundred years. We need to know this stuff, you know? And I think space is very, space flight is extremely important for that. Which leads me on to this one, which might be my favorite of all the experiments the Crew-2 mission has, has, uh, has completed. And and this goes back a while, but they've had some uh, new firsts while doing this. So that this is the Advanced Combustion via Microgravity Experiments, which is, uh, acronym is ACME, which really makes me laugh. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a combustion integrated rack, right? So they're actually making fire. They're basically making things they're explode. Burning which is, stuff. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like it's like watching Roadrunner with a big Acme sticker dynamite, but they're doing it in space in a controlled environment. Amazing. And it's called Acme. Even better. Anyway, uh, on this mission, uh, there were some cool flames investigated in, in the gases. Now, cool flames, I don't mean like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Cool flames, as in flames that burn at extremely low temperatures. Uh, so th- these are nearly impossible to create in Earth's gravity. However, they are easily produced in a microgravity environment. So non-premix cool flames, they are created when fuel and oxidizer are not mixed before reacting. Now, these were discovered in 2012 on the space station during the flame extinguishment study called FLEX. And this helped spawn a rapidly growing research field into the nature of cool flames. However, new research conducted aboard the Orbiting Laboratory in June 2021 has now achieved another first for microgravity flame research. So while flames that while the flames created aboard the station in 2012 burned liquid fuel, these new cool flames burned gaseous fuels. And this is the first time spherical non-premixed cool flames have been burned. Uh, sorry, have been observed burning gaseous fuels. Now, the results of this investigation could lead to, wait for it, cleaner, more efficient internal combustion engines. Isn't that exactly what we've been talking about? Exactly. That's what we want. We want something clean. Yeah. Cool flames are important to study because engine technology is trending toward lower temperatures. Little is known about combustion chemistry at these temperatures and experiments like CFIG could help. And that was from the principal investigator, Peter Sunderland. I mean, that's just crazy. And that's what's been going on on the space station. At the same time as you have these summits down here talking about climate change. It's exactly. happening now and it's happening on the space station that we're, we're getting this technology which is going to help us go forward. And when we talk about inspiring kids to want to go to space and be astronauts, it's because, or, or just get involved in STEM, it's because we need these breakthroughs. We need every mind focused on it. Like what, uh, what Mike Mullane said way back earlier this year when we had him on, saying if we have every mind possible, no matter what they're gender, sexual orientation, race, background, whatever, focused on STEM, then look what we could achieve. And you see things like this. This may seem like a small thing, but this is huge. 
This is huge. Absolutely. And it's happened from Crew 2 being on the space station and obviously not just because those four astronauts, all the people back on back on the ground setting these things up and teaching those guys how to do those insp- um, experiments properly in space. Absolutely. And we've talked about a lot this year, you know, on, on Earth, we're trying to get sort of clean fuels for rockets and things like that. So that really goes in line with what we've obviously what we've been talking about. And this is very inconsequential compared to uh, uh, <laughs> what else, what has, what we've talked about in the last probably 30 minutes, but uh, Tomas Pesquet has done some A plus memes on Twitter. Oh, yes. No, he absolutely has. So uh, I got to give him a shout out. One of my favorites was from a few days ago when talking about coffee. Ugh. Oh, yes. <laughs> I don't, I haven't had coffee since that meme was put up. If you've seen it, you know what, yeah. It made me think. <laughs> it just made my, me think a little bit like, wow, this water came from somewhere, didn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> this came from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, I... Yeah. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Again, though, that's just doing the whole thing of humanizing astronauts and bringing the mission closer and getting people to look into what they're doing while they're up there, which may let let more people inspire more people to go so on and so forth i'm repeating myself now so i think probably it's time to wrap this up and move on all right okay i know you're having a lot more fun up there than we are down here so stay with it roger that and so on to this week's news. Now, at the point of recording, we've had four launches since our last recording. Uh, three in China and one in Japan. Now, one of these Chinese launches included a sustainable development satellite called SDG-SAT-1, which will observe interactions between human ta- activities and nature. More of what we just talked about. Anyway, for more details on all these launches and their payloads, and to watch videos of them launch, head over to our show notes, which can be found on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, or or follow the link in the description of this episode in your podcast provider if you're not listening the week this is out. As we mentioned, the Crew 3 launch was delayed, but it might have happened by the time this episode is out. It's potentially happening on Wednesday, the 10th, hopefully. If it has, I will also include a video of that in the show notes. Last week, we reported that the US Senate had said that the Artemis Human Lander program had to be reopened up, but rather confusingly... The courts have disagreed and have told NASA they can continue with just SpaceX. This has been a seven-month-long debacle, I love that word, debacle, after Blue Origin and Dynetics both lodged uh, protests complaining of flaws in the selection process. But federal judges have ruled against them. This means SpaceX can continue their work to make Starship a lunar lander for the Artemis program. There's been an an Artemis news conference by the NASA administrator, Bill Nelson, just before we recorded today in which he said that the seven months have cost them a lot of time and the second Artemis flight will now not happen until 2024 with the first landing being pushed back to 2025 as a result. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I tried to keep my anger out of that. So. Well done. I, I think it's, um, we, I mean, you and I have mentioned this a few times, that the 2024 deadline for Artemis <laughs> always, it never seemed realistic from the moment they announced it, right? So, uh yeah. I'm not sure the 2025 thing looks realistic either. I'm happy that it's at least still happening and that it might happen in the next 10 years. Yeah, I I agree. I, I honestly, I hate to say it. When they announced 2024 at the beginning, I was like, really? Okay, that's that's a couple of years out. That's not very long from now. That's four years. 
It would be nice just to get a moon landing. How about that? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Just a moon landing. I don't. I don't care. Hopefully, I'll be. Uh, hopefully, I'll be around for it. That would be really cool. I would like to see it. Yeah. So the, this uh, this Bill Nelson press conference. So one thing I would say, my own personal opinion on this is, it does seem that NASA now do want to throw Blue Origin under the bus, uh, and maybe they deserve to be. But it's very convenient that now NASA have an excuse for not missing for missing the deadline when we know they probably weren't going to hit that deadline anyway um so uh, i agree you got to take some of what he's saying with a pinch of salt that yes this this lawsuit will have uh will have delayed them but it was already going to be behind schedule we we all knew it and it's not just because of this uh lawsuit that's taken place yeah uh absolutely i i totally agree i i won't you know, I don't want to get too, too far into this because we have a little bit of other news, but um, it's like the space shuttle. Everybody was like, oh, yeah, the space shuttle will be flying by the mid 70s. And then it'll be yeah. flying by 1978 and then it 1981. So it, it took about a it took forever to develop. So, yeah, I, I totally did not. When they said 2024, I was like, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, we obviously want it to succeed and just make sure they get it right. And I think that's the main thing. And if that takes a few extra years, it takes a few extra years. On a real personal level, I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about Alan Bean. I don't know what I, you know, I was. Do you know why? I was walking around. I was in. I was in Germany this weekend, and I was walking around. This will make you laugh. And a guy walked past me, and for a brief moment, I thought it was Alan Bean. It looked identical to Alan Bean, and then of course I realised it can't be Alan Bean. My thought process after that was just as I was walking along was like, oh man, isn't it going to be real shame and such a disappointment if we haven't landed on the moon again before the last moonwalker is no longer with us? And I know that's a really dark thought, but I really hope it happens before so that there is a crossover between Apollo and Artemis or whatever lands next. I think that's really important. Just otherwise, it will feel like humankind has gone backwards somehow. I agree. It would be nice to see Charlie Duke at the launch. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absolutely. I would love to see that. I would love to see that. That would be so freaking awesome. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, while we're talking about the moon, NASA has announced that Shackleton Crater has been picked as a landing site for a robotic mission of their Prime 1 ice driller, which is going to ride on board Intuitive Machines Nova Sea Lander, which is scheduled to launch on a Falcon 9 rocket next December. Fans of For All Mankind will be pleased with the Shackleton Crater selection. Yes, I saw that and I was like, all right, that's really cool. <laughs> that is really cool. And NASA has also been working hard trying to fix some problems on the Hubble Space Telescope again. Uh, last month, all five of the satellite science instruments went into a protective safe mode due to a problem of synchronization with its internal communications. Well, they've managed to turn on the advanced camera for surveys, so it looks like it's beginning to come to life again. They've also announced that they are honing in on the glitch on the new Lucy spacecraft, which launched on October 16th which has stopped uh, one of its two solar arrays from deploying fully. Uh, they believe a lanyard that pulls out the solar array may have not completed the process successfully, but they aren't sure what caused this condition. However, currently the spacecraft's instruments are working properly, and they're trying to determine if this will cause problems with the mission further down the line. The mission is aiming to fly past seven of the Trojan asteroids in a 12-year mission. 
No spacecraft has gone near these yet, and they are often referred to as the fossils of planet formation. So it's hoped we're going to learn a lot about the early days of the solar system. Yep. I'm really excited about this mission. I hope that it's not going to be a problem, this uh, solar array issue. Uh, Let's hope not. Meanwhile, the new crew on board the Chinese space station took their first spacewalk of this mission on Sunday, the 7th of November, which was also the first spacewalk by a female Chinese astronaut, Wang Yapin. Uh, The crew have been in orbit for three weeks of their six months that they are intending to stay in space. Yeah, the pictures from that were really cool. Yes, we'll post some uh, the video on our show notes. And finally, on Mars, Ingenuity successfully completed its 15th flight on November 6th. It flew for 128.8 seconds and took photos of the scienti- of scientific interest, which should be processed soon. The flight covered 1,332 feet of horizontal distance, traveling at 11.1 miles per hour while being 39 feet above the ground. Crazy. It's yes. still blowing my mind. I'm still Mars. blowing my mind. It was This was supposed to be decommissioned all the way back in August, and there it is. Still there. Yeah, it's still alive. <laughs> Great. And that's the news for this week. Yeah, we try to point this son of a... Turn from the... Roger. <laughs> so we're all done. Uh, thanks very much for tuning in <laughs> once again. We hope that you learned something about science on the ISS and maybe uh, made you think about what's going on up there a little bit. As we've said for the last few weeks, we're in the process of planning all of our shows right up to the end of January currently. And we're beginning to nail down some very cool guests indeed. So plenty of good stuff coming up. I also mentioned that we have some new t-shirts in the intro today. We do. Uh, We've got some new colors on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, and you can get one from there, or you can sign up to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash spaceandthings. All your help is massively appreciated. It really is, and please keep pressing that share button, and don't forget, in space, no one can hear you meme unless you're Tomah Pesquet. (laughs) Of course! (laughs) Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.